Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here in Raleigh, North Carolina, for the SOMA Conference, Special Operations Medical Association Conference. Today, I am talking with Tom and Ella, who are on our faculty and they are here for the first time at the conference. And can you introduce yourselves and say why you're here? Hi, I'm Ella. Um, I'm a GP or family medicine doctor in the north of Scotland on one of the Outer Hebrides Islands. And I also work in A&E emergency medicine uh, in the Scottish Highlands mainland. Hi, I'm Tom. I'm uh, the year two lead on the Corum bachelor's program, paramedic bachelor's program. And then clinically, I'm a paramedic and a pre-hospital care doctor and family medicine doctor up in Scotland. So this is your first time at the SOMA conference. So tell me, why are you here and what did you learn? So we, well, so I got, I got, I was suggested to come probably from the, from Coram running the austere emergency care course, um, which was guided by Sean Keenan, who um, is a big fish would be fair to say, in the special operations medicine he's world. The, he's the next president of SOMA. So, so has, a, has an interest there, clearly, um, who recommended that I come over uh, to SOMA, as did you, Abrick. Yeah. Um, and then, to be honest, it took a little bit of convincing because neither Ella nor myself are uh, military or law enforcement. So it seemed like quite a jump. It seemed like something that would not be overly relevant uh but then we took a gamble on it and were proved wrong which is really nice and i took a look at the workshops and they looked both interesting and directly relevant which kind of i found both reassuring and they looked genuinely very interesting so that probably was a persuasive thing for me as well so which workshops did you do I attended three workshops. One was um, on uh, crike, surgical crike, and then two ultrasound sessions. Each of those was a half day. Um, and this, the ultrasound one was basic ultrasound, albeit not not as basic as I might have expected. Um, and then the other was a focus on musculoskeletal ultrasound. And what were some of the take-home messages, the points? The My favourite probably unexpectedly was the crike session um i've had training and opportunities to do moulage and sim in different um courses that i've done before i've done wet sim um and so i wasn't really expecting it to be more than an opportunity to redo that but i found that the way the session ran we had a demonstration and a talk about the kind of skills and then did practice on mannequins as I've done before and then practice on a model which a person can wear um, and also an opportunity to you know check the anatomy on lots and lots of people and just the sheer number of repetitions we got was completely different to any session I've done before and let you get opportunity to try different methods find what works for your hands positions that tweak the little things rather than mm. just remember the basics of the steps you're going through. And then actually develop muscle memory, presumably, Absolutely. rather than just do the skill once. Oh, yeah, I've done the skill once. Great. And like, risk trying things because normally you know you're going to get two or three goes. So you go through the steps um, methodically, 
Whereas because I knew I could try another 10 times, I'd say, okay, this time I'm going to try having the bougie preloaded. I'm going to try it without the bougie preloaded. I'm going to try holding my hand in this position. Um, And those small things added up to getting a lot more slick over the course of the session. And troubleshooting problems on a mannequin rather than when you're at the side of the road and you're like, oh, that didn't go according to plan or I've dropped my bit of kit. So I'm going to have to improvise and do something slightly different. Exactly. And the other attendees, majority of them were medics um, and several had had the opportunity to do surgical crikes um, in real life, which I haven't. Um, So it was really nice to hear people's experiences and many people's experiences of when it hasn't gone perfectly smoothly Mm. and learn from their their mistakes, um, which I guess is the whole point of conferences, really. One of just on a slight surgical airway sidetrack. One of my supervisors for a research project was a really active pre-hospital doctor. And I was chatting to him one day about surgical airways. And I said, oh, look, it's clearly a core skill, et cetera. And he said, oh, the two he's done, he'd only done two in his career. And they were both people trapped in vehicles in a kind of erect, head up, kind of crushed, smushed position. So neither of them were people lying on the floor with airway compromise. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and he was, he was just pointing out, look, this is really rare, but... Therefore, you can't just train for it in the most simple, easy scenario, Yeah, which was yeah. revolutionary. Talking to someone who's actually done it yeah. and can point out the realism issues. Yeah. And one thing they did in this session, and I guess partly because it's um, tactical uh, as a focus for some of the, the attendees, but they had us practice with our model who was wearing the um, kind of practice model, wearing body armor. Um, for the people who are tactical, it's an opportunity to practice when the, the body armor's stuck you can't get it off but actually more realistically for me if you've got a patient with a very high bmi and the anatomy is a lot more difficult to evaluate Mm. then it gives you an opportunity to just they were using the very basic landmarks of um you know find the thyroid cartilage find the sternal notch both of those at the wrong place looking (laughs) between those um as a basic starting point for Mm. when your mind's going 100 miles an hour and the anatomy is not easy and the techniques were they doing longitudinal or vertical uh, they were doing a longitudinal um, and then, no, sorry, a vertical incision um, part of the skin and then do a, a horizontal incision and were very much pushing for everybody to be doing scalpel finger bougie tube. Um, some people, because they were working in services that provided them with a you know a pre-made kit that had a, a hook or had a trocar, were oh, yeah. going to have to remain familiar with those techniques, but there was a lot of emphasis on um yeah, sticking to scalpel finger bougie as the and nice having a technique that doesn't rely on having a tracheal hook because yeah. if you haven't mm. got one, then your whole muscle memory is gone because you you haven't got the key bit of kit. Yeah, that's quite nice. And so they were advocating no tracheal hooks there, and and they were advocating yeah. something in the hole at all times. Yes, exactly, and um, just kind of because there were lots of people there who had experience of doing it practically, and um, for some people several times just small tweaks like um i've previously been taught you know scalpel make your incision turn it 90 degrees put your finger in behind it but actually realistically that doesn't give you very much space in your hole and so they were suggesting specifically turn it so the blade's pointing to the patient's left hip and Mm. by practicing it so this might be too much detail but for my horizontal incision i just got into the uh, rhythm of making my first horizontal incision always towards myself away from myself and it's then only a 45 degree turn to point to the left hip and that gives your finger the maximum space um, but also means that you've 
done a really nice incision and hopefully that's now in my muscle memory mm. and your fingers on the back of the blade exactly. instead of the front of the blade yeah. yeah and then you had the two ultrasounds yeah so each of the ultrasound sessions were set up so that you rotated through four stations and you had 50 minutes per station and um, with a different focus on each station I would say the only limitation or criticism I'd have of the sessions was that we were using ourselves as models, which is helpful in some regards because you feel where the probe was. But on the other hand, for some people who were the model for a long time, they missed seeing the screen. Um, in the first session, we covered a small session on musculoskeletal, and then we did echocardiogram with focus for kind of uh, emergency assessments. So looking at um, the... Uh, an estimate of ejection fraction, for example, checking for effusions. Um, and then we also did rush. And I think our last section of that was procedural skills um, with lots of opportunity to practice on models, which was very helpful for me. And then the second session was musculoskeletal. And we went through this focus again, being tactical, was looking at um, for the uh, military attendees, things they might be able to ultrasound that would help determine whether mm. or not their patient could stay in the field or not or whether it was guaranteed that they needed to, to leave. Um, so it was identifying fractures, um, identifying, uh, again, severe cardiac issues. Um, the Sorry, not in the musculoskeletal. Identifying um, shoulder issues, um, foot and ankle. And then again, we looked at procedures and discussed some of the nerve blocks that might be useful. But then again, it's, so just hearing you talk about it again, the can I return this person to a combat role or do they need to fly off to another to further investigation is so similar to you're seeing a patient two hours from the nearest x-ray machine. Do I need to send them down at 11 o'clock at night? Do I need to send them down at all? Yeah. It's essentially the same question, just in a different framing. It's yeah. And there were other attendees. So um, one of the instructors, in fact, um, is a primary care physician, same as, as I am. And we were talking about, and it was nice to have someone there from a similar background, albeit that he's military. And there were clearly times when I would be using this in my clinic if I had the facility to. And he was talking about the way he uses it in his clinic in primary care. And exactly like you say, does this patient need to go for me, quite sometimes at quite a distance to get to an x-ray. Um, could they wait until tomorrow, especially if they're elderly and they may be going to need to arrange yeah, yeah. transport? Um, and then all those kinds of logistical problems, they might be created because of different reasons. But if you're working rurally, yeah. you have a lot of the same considerations. I found that throughout the conference, things like clearly and operationally, logistical issues are massive. Can a helicopter land here? Is it safe? Is it appropriate? Is a, is a completely different logistical issue to can this elderly lady find a car to take her two miles down the road and how is she going to get home? Like the logistical issue is different, but they both have the same massive logistical yeah. knock-on effect. Yeah. So then in terms of the medicine, it suddenly becomes very, very similar. Yeah. And questions like, is this fracture um, guaranteed to be an unstable fracture and actually is letting my patient mobilise because they feel that they're able to go and do them active harm? Yeah. And that's the same question in both of those settings. And I would argue there's a, a strong similarity between Scottish farmer, <laughs> desperate to go back to finish fencing, yeah. and <laughs> so a soldier, desperate to go back and join the fight or go back on mission. Yeah. Like. I would suggest the drive is quite similar with those farmers <laughs> brushing off wounds and uh, getting back into the field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So these decision-making processes and, and the assessment skills you, you, you saw are applicable for the civilian austere provider? 
definitely. I think, um, like we were saying, some of those decisions in primary care about whether your patient needs to go to a different facility, um, for a lot of patients, that's not as trivial as just jumping in the car um, and driving five minutes down the road. It might be you need to go to a different island for this facility, or it might be as simple as getting in a car. But on the other hand, you know that there's a, a six hour wait in that department. Mm. And I think that's applicable even if you're not rurally, that what you're asking of the patient might be quite a challenge. And if you can make an assessment about how necessary that is, then you're helping your patient. And, and we talked before about the benefit of um, fluid assessment and and plural, like a pulmonary assessment for is mm. this is this person fluid overloaded or are they fluid deplete? Because often that's quite nuanced, tricky decision. Mm. And if you've got that, that potential dead space of a three hour transport time, should you be using that three hours to rehydrate them or should you be using that three hours to uh, diurese them? Yeah. And point, you know, point of care option is a good handheld option for answering that question. Yeah, that was a section of the first um, ultrasound session looking at IVC um, filling um, was a skill that I definitely want to take forward and be practicing. And I'm going to be, when I'm in emergency department or pre-hospitally, if there's a, an opportunity to do so um, as part of my otherwise continuing my normal assessment, I'm going to start doing that regularly because I want to be able to get my own because I think that's something that would genuinely be practice changing in a way that's massively yeah. beneficial for that patient. So the ultrasound is is profoundly beneficial for the 18 Delta or 68 Whiskey and it's similar to what you guys are doing in Northern Scotland. Yeah, and I was trying to convince the Scottish Mountain Rescue Doctor the other day to have ultrasound, but I think they haven't had any of the introductory, well, essentially, they haven't come to the conferences like this where you see how useful it is. Because I think it cognitively is quite a jump of, is it worth carrying this bit of tech onto the hill? And I think you need to talk to other people who are doing it and clearly, operationally, there's massive issues on every every bit of weight you're carrying is a big issue. Every extra thing in the bag is a big issue, which is the same as a mountain rescue team. You don't want to carry bags that you don't need. So, so I think there's a huge area for advancing. Well, I, I, I don't have the excuse of deciding whether to carry it up the hill. I'm in an emergency department with an ultrasound. Well, you get someone to carry it for you. And I get somebody to carry it for me. <laughs> um, but... Like without sounding like a dinosaur, I have been very reticent to use ultrasound in my own practice. Um, we have an ultrasound in the department at all times. And it's really the only use I have been using it for has been for occasional difficult vascular access and for fascia iliacal blocks. And I haven't been using it because in my mind, there's been this kind of divide where diagnostic ultrasound is for radiologists and sonographers and people who are cleverer than me. And then I'm just a simple family medicine a&E doctor who can use it for simple procedures, whereas actually doing this course and doing it with a wealth of people of different backgrounds who are already using it in EMS or as medics and actually showing me that if you learn your these specific skills and you don't, you know, you know your own competence and you know your own limitations, but you can use it for that. And if you find something, actually, that's extremely helpful mm. and it's going to change my practice. And again, having having those other people who are pioneering focus or pre-hospital or steer ultrasound that are saying don't faff around scanning all of these things yeah. but you can do this one test with this question yeah 
that's the difference because sometimes in um, A&E we'll get um, a sonographer to come and do an echocardiogram for us when we've got a really difficult question to answer I've had that happen and actually that has put me off doing it because I see them doing a full echocardiogram and I can't do that but also I don't want to I want to answer basic questions I don't want to give my patient a full MOT Um, Mm -hmm. and these sessions were focused ultrasound to answer questions that are going to change your management decisions. So you feel more comfortable with the short axis view and long axis view of the heart? Definitely, although work <laughs> needed for the four chamber view. Um, yeah. uh, but I think that's going to be something that I'll continue to have to work on. And, you know, the IPC view isn't the easiest um, going from sub um into the, to the IVC view. But it's something that I now feel that if it's not going to delay my patient getting other things, then I will attempt. And also I'm going to carry on doing more more training so i know that the apus course is coming up and i'm going to uh, attend that and as a vague butterfly was it the butterfly you said could display two views at the same time oh that was 3d a, yeah it can yeah. do it, it's got a, like, a biplane setting which i didn't know yeah. which makes me just think of aircraft but um for vascular access you can get it to show you um long and short axis simultaneously um yeah. which is just a miracle See, I'm jealous that you were shown that, but also in my NHS service that I work for, we have a butterfly. And no one knew that. And I never knew that. So I don't know if anyone else knew that. But well, it's, it, it's IQ, really cool. IQ plus. Oh, Pro. okay. Okay. So if you have an IQ uh, older older version, you're not going to get that biplane. Mm. And the IQ plus also has a 3D bladder scan. Oh, cool. So you oh, can really? see um, the entire bladder and in, in 3D. And you can turn it and see yeah. the different very yeah it's it's fantastic and presumably wow. you might be able to see there's a big clock sitting somewhere yep. Or... yep interesting so that so i pinched that even though you attended the session yeah <laughs> it, it gave me good learning that was good yeah so you you took two ultrasounds and then um a surgical airway tom what did you take yesterday so oh uh, so yesterday was the um i was in the thames track ta- tactical ems right yeah yep. See, I'm down with the lingo. <laughs> um, so that was great. That it, it was a, it was a good session because it had it had multiple speakers talking for about half an hour, twenty minutes each. Um, but as always, the problem with that kind of session is you just end up with a notebook full of bullet points for things you need to go and do more reading about mm. because you think that was excellent, but now I need to go and do some more reading. Or you think that speaker was excellent, I now need to track down everything they've written because. Mm. They clearly are experts. Yeah. In in the thing they were talking about, um, so we there was some really good, there was some good little nuanced um, issues there. There was, uh, I, I wish I had my book so I could tell you who the people were. The snake bite guy was fantastic. My core take home from the snake bite, this is something I didn't know, is he. So when you get someone with a snake bite injury, you mark. If you can find the, the puncture wounds, you mark the puncture wounds with a time. That's obvious. I could probably have done that. You mark the level of swelling or redness with a Sharpie and the time. And I, that's that's my normal practice. That's fine. But then you also mark a line for pain and a line for tenderness. So for each timestamp, you have swelling, redness, you have pain, and you have tenderness because they are different lines. And you mark them with a time, which gives you a much more nuanced mm-hmm. progression of that snake bite injury. So that was fascinating. And then also he did, which I do not do for anything, which is excellent. 
when treatment was being effective, he would mark the um, recovery of that with dotted lines for shrinking areas of pain, shrinking areas of tenderness, <laughs> because then you've got an objective measure rather than, oh, it's better than where it was. You're, all you're, of the, you're trending. You're, you're trending, right? Um, so that was excellent. Uh, there was there was some good um, encouragement to remove tourniquets and the risk of accidental tourniqueting a swelling limb to to the point of are they lying on their wallet? Are they like do they do they slap body armor on that's compressing somewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was excellent. Uh, and I, I made a couple of other notes from his session. There was an excellent pediatric session from a, a pediatric EM doc. Uh, which peed sessions always have lots of learning for me. The one, the core take home I got from that was she said, she, she said, oh, look, most of you in the audience see lots of adult patients and not many peds. So she said, next time you see a significant adult case, when you're having your debrief about that, throw in, so what would we have done if that was a seven-year-old? Mm-hmm. So when you go to a 20-year-old hit by car, and you've managed them and you've offloaded them to the next level of care, in your debrief, you can say, so if that was a seven-year-old, what would we have done? Could we have put that pelvic binder on them? What, do- what dose of morphine would we have given them? What was the tranexamic acid dose for an eight-year-old? Do we know where that is? Can we draw it up? What would we have used for access? Mm-hmm. And I just thought, what a simple, what a simple way of gaming the system to gain pediatric experience without actually seeing you know, because we see lots of adults hit by cars. Fortunately, touch wood, we see very few kids hit by cars. That's fantastic. So um, each each case that you have in a day, then it's also a pediatric case, and it, and it kind of yeah. makes that awareness of... So, imagine, so you uh, do your normal day, you see 10 adults critically injured, critically unwell, but then in your debrief, you've seen 10 pediatric critically unwell patients. Mm-hmm. So that was very that was very clever. Um, we had Dr. Claire Park from, I think her affiliation is London Hems still, but she's done some, she's done the great work on the 10 second triage tool, which has just been rolled out across Mm. NHS England. So it was nice hearing her talk about the development behind it because we'd only seen the final product being rolled out, which is excellent, but really interesting seeing the amount of work they put into that. Um, there were a number of other excellent sessions. The, the There was an FBI session, which was part recruitment drive, which <laughs> not being eligible to join the FBI, obviously, is very disappointing. You would have done. Because yeah. otherwise, I'd, obviously, they'd have snapped me up, I assume. <laughs> um, but just, you know, fascinating to see that insight into the roles of, of something like the FBI, because mm-hmm. we don't have much interaction with the FBI in the UK, thankfully. Um, so that was yesterday yeah and your workshops my workshop so the main workshop was the full day canine emergencies workshop um which sounded very interesting so that's why i signed it up we we have working dogs in in the highlands of scotland where we are so obviously we have farmers with loads of dogs which can get injured alongside a farmer and then we have mountain rescue teams that deploy canines on a pretty regular basis Um, and then we have police dogs Um, so so there's that relevance there and then that session was fantastic it 
it had appropriate level of didactic teaching, it had uh, live dogs, so we could come in and, and learn how, you know, how do you roll a dog onto its side? How do you put a muzzle on a dog? Where do you auscultate? Where do you, yeah, where do you auscultate a dog? Because that's surprisingly not covered in med school. Uh, Where to find (laughs) pulses on dogs? How to check capillary refill um, without annoying a dog too much? Um, Did they talk about uh, tourniquet using the SWAT? Talked about tourniquets. So their their point was no ratchet, no windlass tourniquets at all for a dog. Um, because you can just use elasticated tourniquets. Um, There was a specific dog tourniquet, uh, which uh, name I can't remember, so I can't product endorse it, but it was excellent. It was really easy to use. Um, And so that was great. And then we had some dog cadavers, which clearly that's not the most pleasant thing. and, And I would be more at home with cadaver work on humans because I'm a human doctor. But the, the ability to, you know, we were, we were practicing needle chest decompression on a cadaver. Like that's, that's gold standard training. Apart from standing on the shoulder of a, of a veterinarian treating an actual injured dog, this is the next best thing. And then, you know, airway management on, a, on an actual dog cadaver, fantastic learning. Um, and then being able to talk to the, the, the veterinarians running that session were had been involved in the training of you know special forces operatives other various agencies in the in the u.s that run dogs often so they're training the dog handlers and the team medics to really high standard of canine medicine which you know fantastic to pick their brains about both the actual veterinary medicine but then also things like the legalities of treating a dog Mm -hmm. Because in many jurisdictions you're not allowed to do that because that's that scope creep against veterinarians. Um, but hopefully everyone can agree that you probably should stop a dog bleeding to death. But where is that? Where's the where's the cutoff? Because once you start giving opiates to a dog and giving tranexamic acid to a dog, yeah, that's kind of veterinary medicine. Which, um, so just so that was fantastic. Such an expert panel. Such a a fantastically organized session. And you said there was good use of VR? Oh, and there was VR guys uh, who've got a VR training package who have a canine scenario, well, multiple canine scenarios. So we did a canine scenario in the street, injured dog, and then in a helicopter of an injured dog. Wow. Um, And the the interface for that um, VR was was excellent because often it's so clunky, there's no educational value. But this, they clearly put so much work into it, um, and again, it gives you that option of running a scenario again and again and again. Mm. So that was excellent. And then, there, and then there was another breakout session in that of it sounds very basic of just bandaging dogs, but bandaging dogs is a lot more difficult, or I guess more difficult for me than bandaging a human, because humans generally don't have big floppy ears <laughs> that you need to like strap to their head, and 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 the key take-home point of dogs have five limbs because they've got legs and a big tail. So you, you have to actively think about that. And then how do you bandage a tail? Or which bit of a tail do you tourniquet? So that was excellent. Wow. So 
You just do a sam splint and a tail, does it? You do. They they had so the tip of the tail will just keep bleeding like a fire hose, mm. but not a catastrophic hemorrhage level of bleeding. Right. So they were they were endorsing covering and then taping on a like a solid cover for the the tip of the tail. Oh. So like a solid syringe cover case, mm. which we don't really have in the UK, or um, or like a big sixty mil syringe with the plunger removed. Mm. And then taping that on, and okay. they said it might it will collect the blood, but if nothing else, it will stop the dog spraying everyone with <laughs> dog blood. It contains the problem, and then eventually it will it will clot. But just little things like that, or no sea locks into the bottom of the syringe. Yeah, you can use sea locks on dogs. Yeah, okay, completely fine. Enough. Yeah. Um, but that that was just really interesting. But again, it just raises loads of issues. Of I now want to go back to the UK and start asking questions of oh how much. How much canine medicine training do your handlers have? And oh, and the other issue from that was if the handler is taken out or is incapacitated, who then is going to manage that working dog? So luckily, Police Scotland have been excellent. I really enjoy working with them. And I hope nothing ever happens to the dog handlers. But some of their dogs are quite intimidating. What if the handler is incapacitated? What's the plan for for looking after and controlling their working dog or, or get, even getting to the operator so or the operator's getting, yeah. down mm-hmm. yeah. the dog's literally on top of them and won't let anyone come close yeah, yeah. so so again it, i think it was a great session because it raises lots of questions so i've got a notebook with lists of questions because i work alongside police scotland fairly often uh, and as i said that you know it's excellent i love working alongside them but i don't want to be in a situation where i can't get to the dog handler because their very well-trained dog is protecting the dog handler. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what the answer to that is. So now I need to track down someone in Police Scotland who knows the answer to that problem. Um, and it's one of those things where someone has worked out the best answer to that problem. Yes. Um, but a lot of us are going to have to wing it the first time we come across. And it's not, I mean, it's tactical situations, but also a patient's dog at an RTC can cause the same issue. And instead of us all winging it, it's so much better if someone else has already worked on the problem and yeah. tells you what they mm. do. If we, you know, if you've already got a plan for those eventualities, which are rare but regular, yeah. Like we've all been to an RTA where there's a, there was a dog in the car, and the driver needs to go to hospital. What to do with the dog? Yeah. And we should have an answer to that ahead of time. Um, so that session was, that was just great. It's probably one of the best conference sessions I've ever been to. Fantastic. And it, you know, was completely was you know an alien concept dog medicine isn't isn't <laughs> something i've done it was great so now that you've you've had your first soma where do you go from here are you going to submit an abstract for next year's soma i think i think we need to think about whether there is anything interesting that we have to tell the people at soma because there are some very interesting people here already with a huge wealth of experience you keep saying that, and then I hear stories of, oh, yeah, it's 25 minutes to get to the casualty, and then I was sitting on the casualty for four hours, Hems decided not to come, and then I had to move the casualty. Oh, and I'm working with Police Scotland. I'm the, Tom, you you have every right to present at this conference. Yeah, maybe, maybe my in can be roping in a uh, Police Scotland colleague, <laughs> and then, I'll, then I won't feel as much that I'm uh, sneaking into a tactical medicine conference. Mm. 
But I think there's there's other people in Scotland who could bring loads to this conference as well. I mean, it would be great to get some of the small island GPs and island doctors to this conference because they have got some really, really interesting learning and strategies of dealing with prolonged field care of patients because they have a patient on an island that has a small hospital that's effectively a mm. nursing home and they end up looking after a, a trauma patient for 12, 16, 24 hours because of weather. And that's an experience that a lot of these tactical guys will share and they'll have different. And some of those island, you know, they've got excellent protocols in place mm -hmm. because it's they've been burnt before. Yeah. And they, they got burnt once and then they we're going to solve that problem. This is now our prolonged field care guidance. Yeah. But they don't call it that. Yeah. It would just be the delayed retrieval yeah. book. Yeah. Or perhaps it's not what you might imagine is austere care but they've got that very small hospital with one bay that they use as their A&E majors and they get a sick child for 24 hours and they've run out of paediatric size cannulas, paediatric size airways. And again, that's kind of shared experiences. Yeah. Or nappies or yeah. milk. Or yeah. yeah, absolutely. All the things that you forget about until they are very important. Yeah. Everyone loves to focus on all the cool guy tactical gear and medical gear. Oh, this BVM collapses down yeah, into the yeah, size yeah. of a toothpick and, and they're forgetting the yeah. nappies. Yeah. And the nappies are like, and... I've run out of flush because I put 10 flushes in my prolonged field care bag yeah. Yeah. and I use them instantly and dropped half in a ditch. Yeah. If you're like me. <laughs> so you're heading back tonight. How has this experience, how has Soma changed your medical practice? I think... I think something conferences aspire to do is to be inspirational. And I know that's like a little bit of an overly earnest and um, I don't know, it's an embarrassing thing to, to talk about. But genuinely, the conference has been inspiring. And um, I think for me, the ultrasound stuff giving me a bit of confidence to set aside my imposter syndrome and embrace it as a, a skill that I can learn and that will be useful to me has been great. And then it's also just been just genuinely really fun and meeting people who have similar experiences and similar problems that I have, but mm. in a totally different job. And that's been really fun. Yeah. I, yeah. Firstly, it was a really enjoyable conference. And I think that's kind of the main thing, right? Because as much as it's education, you should enjoy it as well. I, I think, so I was only introduced to the prolongedfieldcare.org and the guidelines about a year ago, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago. So I've, I've already get on board with that, but having an, another opportunity to see multiple agencies all using those guidelines and other civilian agencies using those guidelines because they're really good and they're really useful and people have put so much work into them. It's, it's been a nice reinforcement of that's always a good place to go because they might have already answered the question for the problem you're working on. So I think that was good. Uh, loads of the conference sessions raised extra questions for me to go and investigate. So that's what I'm going to take home. Um, oh, I've got loads of notes that I need to go and <laughs> review. But it's just, um, be back. yeah, so that's the other thing, isn't it? Because it, it was so welcoming as civilian medics, you wouldn't necessarily think that a special operations medical conference would be the most comfortable place for us to sit. But I think it was the opposite. I think it's one of the most welcoming conferences. Yeah, I agree. And, and the person you're sitting next to might be, they might be an on the ground 
frontline combat medic, but equally they might be a police officer, non-medical specialist, or they might be the head of a very large organization running their whole medical training. But all of those people have something to learn. All of them have something to talk to you about. And all of them are very welcome. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's surprisingly international. Like bumping into, there were some Finns, there were some Germans, there were some other Brits. Norwegians. Norwegians, of course. Yeah. Which was nice. Again, you you know, you wouldn't necessarily, or we wouldn't necessarily expect that. Because we haven't been before. So that was nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Fair enough. We uh, we look forward to seeing you guys present next year. No no pressure. Let's keep saying that. But <laughs> I feel that your experiences as austere doctors has a place within the Special Operations Medical Association. And uh, I would very much like to see you guys in front of the lecture hall. Mm, uh, something to work towards, I think. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming and thanks for um, taking a, a leap of faith in uh, listening to Sean Keenan and listening to myself suggest this. And uh, I'm glad you guys did it. Yeah, yeah, we're glad too. Yeah, it's great. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. If you would like to earn CPD credit for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credits, free access to the virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on the college website, which is quorum, C-O-R-O-M, quorum.org.